The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Our ministry goal this year, which we shared about a month ago, is to grow in humility before God and with one another. And I can't think of a passage of Scripture that we could choose to look at all this year than the book of Genesis to help us grow in humility. Uh, when, we, when we open the pages of Genesis 1 and we realize these are enormously huge cosmic things that God is speaking to us about in His Word. And here we are, little finite humans, trying to understand how it all took place. It is very humbling. And so we pray that this will not be only an academic exercise, but indeed a a part of our worship with our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, strength and mind. And this is the mind part, isn't it? Another thing that humbles us is when we pray together, and I would invite you, as Kevin shared earlier, to come and join us on this coming Wednesday in the, the common office area for a time of prayer. Come to the quiet is when we gather together and we have an opportunity to let the Scriptures lead us into prayer. And uh, I would encourage you to join us that, that evening. <clears throat> and so... Even as we begin to open God's Word now, would you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1? Excuse me. And let's take a look at what God's Word says in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to just read verses 1 to 5. And I would ask you to stand with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to this sacred text this morning and we humble ourselves before You. And God, we acknowledge that You have made us stewards of this text. You have asked us to be faithful with this text. You have made us stewards of all of creation. We are to overrule and, and, and see that it gets cared for. You've made us stewards of our own bodies in our health and our strength. You've made us stewards of children and families that you've given to us. Lord, you've made us stewards of the Word of God that we might rightly divide the Word of truth. You've made us stewards of scientific d- discovery and research that we might take the book of nature and the book of Scripture and harmonize them as from one author. Oh God, we are not equal to such a task without lots of mistakes. And so at the outset of this message, we ask you, Lord, would you, by your mercy, come down, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and our minds so that we might love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about this idea that indeed God has given us two books and that the books are the book of nature and the book of Scripture. We talked about the fact that 
the science that interprets all data, whether it is in the field of Scripture, indeed even in the field of science, though they don't use that word as often, is the word hermeneutics. It means the science of interpretation. And how we make theories and make, make judgments and come to conclusions is all part of having integrity to, to make sure that we do it in such a way that, that matches what God has meant by that science or nature or by that text of Holy Scripture. And this morning as we continue, we're going to be uh, jumping into the Scriptures, but I want to say, first of all, that the, the shape of the sermon today the shape of the sermon is like a big funnel, and <laughs> like that. And um, we're gonna we're gonna start at the top of the funnel, and we're gonna talk about the two predominant views of the of origins of life, and then we're gonna talk about the credible scripture that we have, the Genesis text, and then we're gonna get looking at the three prominent prominent views of of Scripture or of uh, the origin of life. And then finally, we're going to look at the actual text of Scripture. And so I'm not sure what's happening with my PowerPoint, but there it goes. <clears throat> so let's jump in. Let's start talking about the uh, very first point, and that is the origin of life. It's a false dichotomy, I admit, right off the bat, because I've already told you that there's one author of the God of the book of nature, and there's one author of the book of Scripture, and they're the same author. And so therefore, to say creationism or naturalism is, I believe, a false dichotomy, but the reason that, that the origins of life have basically followed two very di different streams of thought is because science has been predominantly overrun and dominated by atheistic thinking, and Scripture, of course, and theology has been, been dominated by belief people, people that have theistic belief. They believe in God. And so these two groups have come to very different conclusions about the origin of the universe and of life. Essentially, biblical creationism teaches that God is the ultimate cause for the universe and all its life forms. Our origins are the result of an all-powerful, all-wise God, an all-loving God. We believe in intelligent design because there was a designer himself, God. And of course, scientific naturalism, which you could use the word atheistic or scientific if you want to as adjectives to describe it, but naturalism teaches that the universe is viewed as an eternal, self-governed, and self-generating system. There is no transcendent being. Rather, our origins are explained in terms of random forces of scientific nature, big bang theories and natural selection and evolution and so on. Now, we could complicate it far more than that because it actually is more complicated than that. And, and the fact is that it could be broken down even further. Creationism, which basically says God did it. And then there is intelligent design because there are some who believe in intelligent design, but they will not say that God did it. They will say that there's some other intelligence that might be the source of what we see on earth today. There is also what is called theistic evolution, which is meaning that God used evolution. Some people reverse that and say evolutionary creationism. You can do whichever one you want, but it's the idea that God did it, but he used evolution. And then finally, there is atheistic evolution, that the belief that natural science will explain everything one day, even if it hasn't done so, so far today. 
Now, I share this simply to say that when we talk with someone about the origin of the universe, we open up a vast field of possible beliefs. And depending on who you're talking to, you will, you will have a conversation that will go in various directions. It requires incredible wisdom and patience and, and love to enter into a discussion with respect and fair-mindedness. And too often, what, we hap what happens is that we allow the labels to affect the relationship. We really do. Uh, for example, you have perhaps read the book by Francis Collins called The Language of God. And uh, Dr. Collins was a fascinating book. I read it three years ago. He was the leading scientist who headed up the Human Genome Project studying human DNA. And he is uh, not, first of all, a scientist. He is, first of all, a God-fearing Christian who has a high view of Scripture. And he, in his conclusions, comes to the, the, the belief that Genesis and the Big Bang Theory are actually quite compatible if God is the cause of the Big Bang. And so he is a thinking scientist, a believing, Bible-believing Christian, and he has come to this conclusion. In fact, he comes to a place, and he, 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 is, he would be called a theistic evolutionist. He believes in theistic evolution. But he doesn't like the term, and so he came up with a term called biologos, and biologos is the idea that God is the source of all life. Bio is life, and logos is word. And so he, he formed those two. He organized, in, he organized in 2007. If you go online, biologos.org, you will find incredibly helpful literature that takes the book of nature and the book of God, the scriptures, and brings them together. I would commend that. And just so you know, I was just reading recently some things that Dr. Timothy Keller says about this, giving his endorsement of this organization. I was, so, so the idea is, the point I'm making is that, that you, could, you, could, you could say, oh, Collins, he's a theistic evolutionist, and by that very thing, the label, say, I'm not going to learn from him. And that would be a mistake, I think. That would be a mistake. Labels can get in the way. Another book I would commend to you, <laughs> Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time. I was surprised. I was surprised to say, see this in his book. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just the way, this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. This is coming from Stephen Hawking. I, I say this is a fair-minded thinker right in this moment, in this point in the quote anyway. He might come to other conclusions that I certainly can't agree with. Another scientific man, Robert Jastrow, who was um, an astrophysicist and wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, says this, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason. The story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over to the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Another book that I 
just read recently Malcolm Muggeridge. He says this, I am I myself, he says, this is at a conference, by the way, where he was asked by a, a person in the conference, he said, what are your views on evolution? Malcolm Muggeridge responded by saying this, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially the extent to which it is applied, will be one of the great jokes in the history books in the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity that it has. He writes that in the book, uh, The End of Christendom. Now, why do I share this with you? I do not share these things to be smug, to throw stones, to claim superiority somehow. I share with them with you as a warning that the things that are always, the things are not always as they appear in the halls of higher education or in the laboratories of scientific experiments. And I wish we could go more on this theme, but I just felt as though at least as we handle the sacred text of Genesis 1, we at least have to mention in the pulpit what evolution is and the, the warning that has to be taken. And, and if you want to know more or talk more about this, I would, I would invite you to come on no, November the 13th, the Wednesday evening in the common room area after the meal. I'm going to be having some talk back time on the Genesis series. And you might want to be one of, one of the ones that comes and brings your questions or answers or or whatever. But let's go on now because we need to, to do that. The Genesis account. And let's start by talking about what I will call other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. Let me read to you the quote that is in the insert in your bulletin by Kenneth Matthews. <clears throat> ancient myth tells of a threatening and unpredictable world where the gods operate, placing society at their mercy. Ancient religion celebrated the gods, but also attempted to control them through cultic ritual. And against this backdrop, the Genesis account speaks volumes regarding the uniqueness of biblical revelation. Indeed, revelation was required to liberate antiquity from its superstitions and fear of the world that was viewed as a playground for capricious deities. Now, it should not rock our faith in the least bit to know that there are other creation accounts in antiquity, there are other accounts of the flood in antiquity that actually predate the Genesis record that is in our Bible. That should not rock your faith. And again, we must remember, they are not parallel and identical to the Genesis record that we have. One of the biggest differences is that they're all polytheistic. They have many gods, and they have the cultural garb of whether they came from Babylon or Egypt or somewhere else. But again, we must not be rocked in our faith to think just because there's other creation accounts that somehow ours is invalid. We must understand, we must be thinking Christians. From the very beginning of time, how did it all happen? It happened through oral tradition and stories being passed on down through the different cultures. And then each culture throwing their spin of religious perversion on it, the mythology that, that, that accumulated around it, and then the legends that were told. And it came to a point where God said, I must give my people Israel the truth about the origin of the universe and the origin of all life. And I believe that's how God brought Genesis into being. And of course, the authorship of Genesis is generally Moses. It's given to Moses. Not only do we see that in the, in the Pentateuch itself, the, 
first five books of the Bible, but also Jesus in quoting from Moses. The date that he wrote was probably somewhere between 1445 and 1405 B.C. It was, of course, at least 400 years after the events that are recorded in Genesis, the death of Joseph. Moses lived over 400 years later. He had oral tradition. He had some writings that were passed down. But we believe that God the Holy Spirit gave by divine inspiration the record that we have in our Bibles today to correct all the mythology, all the things that had gathered up till that time, to be a witness to the surrounding cultures of the living God and how, how he operated. And that this God is not like all the other mythologies, one to be feared and, and exonerated and so on, but, but rather a God. This is the true living God that puts all chaos into order and brings you under his lordship and gives you life and peace. And so we believe in this kind of a scripture. And regardless of the date of when Genesis was thought to be written and so on, we believe that, like Psalm 96.5 says, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So important. The Lord made the heavens. Let's talk about the kind of scripture it was, the Torah. Genesis to Deuteronomy is called the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. The Torah, the word means instruction in doctrine. And I only mention this point simply to say that when we read the book of Genesis, we must understand that we are entering into a cross-cultural experience. And if you read the book of Genesis with your 21st century Canadian English mindset, you might miss some of what's going on there. And so we must understand that Jewish scholarship is a great friend when it comes to this. Let's talk about the structure of Genesis. And the structure of Genesis is, is very interesting. Genesis 1 to 11 and chapters 12 to 50 are very big and broad categories of the structure. But there's a little Hebrew word called Toledo, which is actually used throughout the book of Genesis that shows us that the one who wrote it, likely Moses, had a very clear intent in dividing up the book the way he did. And so we read in, in, this, uh, in this account 11 times the, the word Toledo is mentioned. And um, the first time is in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The word Toledo means these are the generations. And he goes on, chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. All the way to chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of the sons of Jacob, which is where we end. The 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel. Now the question has to be asked, why are there only 11 Toledos when 12 is the perfect number? 12 tribes of Israel and so on. And most people respond to that by saying the first Toledo was not using the word Toledo, but it's in the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1 is the first. Here is God, the Father, in His procreative act, leading us to the creation of Adam and Eve, His offspring, who are created in His image for His glory. And that's the first Toledo, though it does not use the word. And that's how we fit those 12 Toledos together. Let's move on to talk about the days of creation. And I know I'm moving fast. It's because I really want to land on the fun stuff, which is the last point, okay? The three main views of the days of creation. We could spend months talking about and exploring the different views of the six, seven days of creation. 
But essentially, they would probably fall into one of three categories. And the first one, which I apologize, are in my notes, and some reason did not get put in the insert in your bulletin. The first one is the 24-hour view. Please write that in your insert, the 24-hour view. You already think I'm biased because of that, probably. The second one is the day-age view, and the third one is the framework view. Let's talk about these three quickly. The 24-hour view holds to the interpretation of seven 24-hour days of one earth week, and those who hold to this view usually believe in a young earth. They have studied the record of Scripture, and they have come to the belief that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Many of you would have been taught this from Sunday school on up. Many of you believe that today. It is the most obvious use of the term in Hebrew yom, day, the 24-hour period, 24 hour period of a day in Genesis 1. It is the position of the group that visited our church three years ago, uh, the Creation Ministries International, and uh, some of the early church fathers like Basil the Great, some of the reformers, the big guys, John Calvin and Martin Luther, believed in the 24-hour day uh, interpretation of Genesis 1. Recently, I even heard that R.C. Sproul, who I have great respect for, reversed his opinion that he'd held for most of his life and went back to the 24-hour kind of interpretation of Genesis 1. So that's, that's the 24-hour view. The other one, the next one is called the day-age view. And under this is a whole group of different interpretations. This position believes that the days are in chronological order, but each day does not necessarily represent 24 hours, but rather a period of time. And uh, there's various offshoots. For example, the gap theory is is sort of like the day-age theory, but they would say that before the days of creation even began in in verse 3, that between verse 2 and 3, there was this incredible gap, and there might have been of a long span of time. There's the mature creation view, which says that there was a 24-hour days that God created the earth, but they were made to look much older. That one messes my head up. I don't get that. And then there's the an analogical day's view, which be, means basically that it's God's work day, not ours. And they quote from, from uh, Psalm 90, verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 8, with the Lord, the day is, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And so that's the analog. It's, it's an, an analogy of days. It's God's day. It's not our day. And so that's the way some get around it. But basically, Josephus, the early church historian, believed that the long-day view was the most accurate way of interpreting uh, Genesis 1. Irenaeus, the 2nd century, Origen in the 3rd century, Augustine in the 4th century, Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century, all of these heavyweights believed, indeed, that these are geological periods of time, not 24-hour literal days, okay? So, so he, you're left with a lot of stuff here, I know, this morning. you got, you got big guys weighing up on that side and big guys weighing up on this side, and now I'm going to throw at you one more. Framework view. A broad category as well that interprets the days and crea- of creation as a logical but not necessarily chronological order. Let me read to you from John Lennox in his book, Seven Days That Divide the World. Well, well-titled book, eh? Rather than scientific language, 
Lennox writes, the Bible often uses what is called phenomenological language. Try to say that seven times. Phenomenological language, which is the language of appearance. That's the language that Genesis uses. And most of the framework view understand that's the way we need to believe or read Genesis. Clement of Alexandria in the second century believed that Creation could not take place in time since time was not born yet. Uh, St. Augustine as well, even in his commentary on Genesis, he actually believed that God created everything in a moment, like the snap of a finger, but he communicated it to us, representing logical sequence of days, to explain it to us. Okay, that's what St. Augustine believes in his uh, commentary. And so, um, again... One of the first to hold to a framework view was a theologian in the 18th century named Gottfried von Herder, and he believed in this idea that there is a literary, a literary artistic masterpiece being written, not just history but poetry, and he believed that the framework is meant to convey uh, the, the message of functionality and not so much materiality. And so we're going to talk about that in a little while. One thing I think that's important, John Lennox again, saying this. He says, No major doctrine of Scripture is affected by whether you believe that the days are analogical days, long periods of time days, or normal days that God spoke into being. None of the major doctrines are affected. And I believe that he's right in saying that. Our unity as Christians is not built on how old we believe the earth is, or how we think God brought to bear each day of the creation, what things he created, our unity is in Jesus Christ. And indeed, not saying that many things in Genesis are just to be dismissed. And we'll talk about some of those essentials as we get closer. Well, let's get to the fun part. I don't know if you've been having fun yet, but <laughs> I'm going to have more fun at the end here. Uh, I believe there are keys for interpreting the days of creation that are found right in the text. And I again would refer to your uh, insert in your bulletin, uh, a quote by John Lennox when he said this, that the narrative of Genesis starts with a world without form and void, and it then describes how God speaks and through his creative word, day by day, step by step, shapes and fills the world so that it is finally fit for habitation for creatures that uniquely bear God's image and likeness, human beings. And, and I think that's an important understanding. There are two little words that are used in verse 2 of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, tohu, and void, wabohu. Though the earth was without form and void. And these two words, I believe, are critical for the rest of Genesis 1 to interpret what we see saying. In fact, um, others believe this too. Uh, John Salehamer says the description of the land as formless and empty plays a central role in the creation account because it shows the condition of the land before God's gracious work has prepared it for humanity's well-being. Tohu wabohu. Genesis 1-2 is like the introduction to the six days of creation where God takes tohu, something that is without form, and he forms 
in the days of creation, one to three. And then he takes what wabohu, which is empty and void, and in days four to six, he fills what he's formed in days one to three. He fills it with meaning. And so you can see that these two little words, which rhyme, by the way, and so for those who say, no, 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 Genesis has to be only history, we must be careful that we don't impose our category, categories on ancient literature. And Hebrew literature was very accustomed to using poetic imagery in history, in narrative, and prose, and so on. And so here we have two very important words. It's as though God was taking a lump of clay on a potter's wheel that was without form, and void, just chaos, and as that wheel begins to spin, he began to form. He began to form it and then fill it with some purpose that he made it for. That's the picture of tobu, to, to, Tohu Wabohu. Now, I, wanna, I want you to, this is where the fun begins. I want you to take the insert that's in your bulletin. And I want you to turn it on the back side of that insert where you see some nice drawings. Is Nikki Manuel here today? She's not here. Wow. I did get her permission, by the way. <laughs> Nicole Manuel works for an organization called Truth78, formerly called the Children Desiring God Ministries out of Minneapolis. And uh, she did these drawings during a study of Genesis that the women of our church were doing several years ago, and I asked her permission to use these. And the way that, that she has done this is just profoundly perfect for for the way that I want to teach the book of Genesis in chapter 1 and 2. And I, I want you to take it, take it out, and if, if the ushers have more copies, do we have more copies if anybody needs them? Put your hand up if you'd like an extra copy, more than one per family, and the, the guys will get some to you as they come down the aisle. Just put your hand up. Would you take a pen? and I, I want you to notice that, that Nikki has drawn it in such a way that that days one and two and three are down the left column, and days four and five and six are down the right column. Now, will you put at the top of the page of the, of the left column, forming, forming. Just write that word, forming. And at the top of the right column, would you write the word, filling. Forming and filling. Remember, Tohu, something that's without form. Wabohu, something that is void, needs to be filled. It is the words that have to do with something that is unproductive, being made productive, something that is uninhabited, becoming inhabited. I want you to see that I believe this is the key to unlocking the six days of creation. And so let's start in day one, first day, top left corner. And it's, you could put verses 3 to 5 there of Genesis 1 if you want to help to remember. I want you to notice that God created light. God created light. What is it? It's singular, light. So, so I don't know what verse 2 looked like. But, but somehow there was already stuff that God brought out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God created something, but it was without form. And it was empty, it was void. But he made that stuff, and the first thing he spoke into being was light. And he separated the light from the darkness. 
And he called the light day, which for some people gets messed up because day here is 12 hours, not 24 hours. That's an aside. We'll come back to that. And night, he called darkness, he called night. God formed light out of darkness. Now go over to day four, right beside it. After God formed the light, it says in day four, verses 14 to 19 of Genesis 1, that God created lights, plural, lights, in the expanse that he'd created. One of the lights he created was a greater light to govern the day. Remember, phenomenological language, language of appearance, didn't call it the sun, he called it the greater light, the one that goes by in daytime that you see. And then he said there's a lesser one. We call it the moon. They didn't call it the moon. They just call it the lesser light that rules at night, the moon. Phenomenological language, language of appearance. And then he says, and, and, and then there's the stars. See, what God did was he created, he formed light, and then he filled light with the sun and the moon and the stars. Let's go to day two. Day 2, verses 6 to 8. God, this is the hardest day of all, by the way. Kind of hard to deal with, but day 2, verses 6 to 8. God seems to create waters and an expanse between the waters, and he calls that expanse heaven. And he forms heaven with water above and below. We, we don't, it's hard. Nikki has drawn it in a certain way there as she's read the text. Go to day 5, which is found in verses 20 to 23. What does God fill the waters with? It says God created creatures to swarm the waters. And what does he put in the sky? Again, the, the people of the ancient Near East did not distinguish between our atmospheric sky and space. Right? They just looked up and said, whoa, there's a lot of stuff up there that's nothing. Phenomenological language, appearance. But what did God do? God filled birds up there in the sky and fish down there in the sea. God formed it. God filled it. Go on to day three. Verses 9 to 13. In this section, God gathers the waters and puts them in one area on earth, and he lets the dry land appear. He forms dry land. For the first time. And not only does he form the dry land, but he starts to have earth that has vegetation, seeds yielding plants, and fruit bearing trees. And that's what God forms. And then day six, he fills what he's formed on day six. He fills what he's formed on day three, verses 24 to 31. It says, God created living creatures to populate the earth livestock, creepy, crawly things, wild animals. And the culmination, the, 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 the zenith of his creation is you and I, human beings. He created men and women. Men and women, in his image, he created them. Verse 27. Now I want you to notice, I want you to notice the progression. The progression, the functionality of the progression is more important than the materiality of the progression. In fact, on the first day, there's nothing material created because light isn't material. But the function is everything that's going to eventually, on day six, sustain you and I so that we can live and breathe and move and not die 
Everything has to be created in this kind of an order to sustain life. Oh, what wisdom in God's creation. Incredible. Incredible. So what does this mean? What difference does it make, we could ask? Whether we believe in one of these views or not, whether what, what, is diff- what difference does Genesis 1 make? And I, I think we have to end there and talk about that. I want to say right off the bat that God is a God that reverses our tohu and wabohu. God is the God of creation that reversed the formless and voidness of the expanse of what he had created. God is the one also that takes what you and I have in our chaotic mess of life, the formlessness and the voids of our lives where there is no purpose and no meaning in life. God reverses that. He says, I want you to have purpose. I want you to have meaning. That's who God is. If you take anything out of this scripture, you've got to take that personally home with you, that the same God that brought order out of chaos in, in chapter, one of, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 and so on, he can bring order out of the chaos of your life. We need to take that home and live with that. That's what God wants us to learn from Genesis 1. I believe also that he is the one who turns our chaos into order and he turns our darkness into light. And, and man, I, I don't know if you live in depression if you face dark times, if you feel that life is ganging up on you, if, if you're going through a really hard season, God is the one that takes your darkness and turns it into light. God is the one who gives life. And why did he give life? He gave life so that you and I would have relationship with him. God is the one who, for the first time in Genesis 1, dwells on earth with the people that he created, you and I to be in fellowship with. And even after sin had broken our relationship with him, God is the one who says, you mean so much to me because you're in my image. I'm going to make a way back to me. You had to leave the garden. You had to leave my presence. You had to leave because I'm holy. You can't have anything to do with me because you're sinful now. And God is the one who formed a way back to him. Out of our brokenness, he starts to form and fill our lives with meaning. That is the whole reason why Jesus Christ came. And today on this day as we study Genesis 1, this is a great moment for us to come to the table of the Lord and to be reminded that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, what he did for us on the cross, is that he took our chaos and made order. He took our darkness and gave us light. He took our death and gave life. And he lives today and he welcomes you here. I don't know how you're doing, but I would ask today that as you receive the cup and the bread, would you lay it all down before him? If you've got chaos that needs order, would you lay it down before him? If you've got darkness that needs light, if you've got death that needs life, Would you just lay it down before him now in prayer and trust that he's able 
he's able to make it live. Let's pray together, and then I'm going to invite the ushers to begin sharing the Lord's Supper. Remember to take the plate and pass it on to the next person before you take the bread and the cup. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time around your word. We value, Lord God, what you have taught us. And we pray that you might minister your grace to us. And we thank you, Lord, for the bread. We thank you, Father, that it represents your body, Jesus. We thank you for the cup. It represents your blood. You died for us so that we could be restored to you, a living relationship with you, Jesus. We celebrate that today. We remember your death. Bless each one today as they pray to you. In your name we ask it, amen. Brothers and sisters, the bread you hold and the cup you hold represent the body and the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Eat and drink in remembrance of him and be thankful. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God bless you. We'll receive an opportunity just to hand back the cups in the first basket that goes around. And then right after that, we will hand another basket around to collect a benevolent offering for those in need. God bless you. Lord God, thank you for meeting us here today. Lord, we recognize that this spot that we're standing on didn't used to exist. That this was formless and void. This wasn't here, and now it is because you put it here. You've created all things, and you took chaos, and you put order to it. And you're not afraid of our chaos either. As we wrestle with sin, as we struggle with pride, as we do all the different things, and we have the sin that we do. I thank you, Lord, for your boldness, for your love, and for reaching into this chaos that has been us, and through your son, Jesus Christ, offering us order, so that when you see us, you don't see our sin, you see Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Bless each one of us as we go from here, and may you be glorified by this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have an awesome day.